Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. I got to be honest, though. Last Sunday, uh, my, my family and I were going somewhere else, not a different church. We were just on the way to somewhere else, and I kind of felt like I was playing hooky a little bit. It was like 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm like dr- driving through town, and I'm like, I'm not at church this morning. I, I must be doing something wrong. I I, I kind of had like that like that feeling like when you're a kid and you fake sickness at, to stay at home and watch cartoons. That's kind of the feeling I had. And I kind of love it. It was kind of awesome. I was kind of like, I'm I'm bad today. I love it. Kind of harbored that inner whatever feeling, and it, it was it was just it was fun. But uh, we took our our Sunday morning to Cabela's, and so. Uh, the kids that looked at all the ish, as they call them, fish translation. Um, and it, in Ellis's world, my son, we, Cabela's is not a thing. If you ask him what Cabela's is, he'll be like, Bella's? Yes, but Bella's. There's no Cabela's in our world. But uh, it, was just, it was just fun, like I said, to just be away and just hit the pause button. And it just, I'm, let me tell you, church, uh, there's some really big things coming. Uh, and I can tell you that, not just from a pastoral standpoint, but just as I took time to just go, oh, God was stirring some God-like dreams in my heart. And I can tell you something, that when God speaks a dream to you and you go, oh boy, <laughs> like that scary, fearful drop in your stomach feeling, you know it's of God because there's no other way you can go through it. Like you need that God-like dependence. And that's how I felt as I thought about what was ahead for the Bridge Church and uh I actually thought about Bethany. I just want to break on Bethany for a second because she talked about how she's our office admin, but Bethany has a pastoral heart, and Bethany is just fantastic. She leads as a pastor, and so don't let her fool you. She's not just our office assistant. She is one of our pastor, and she did a phenomenal job last Sunday. But I'm going to be done being sentimental. You guys don't care about what I did or where I was, even though it was awesome, and I ate some good food, and Northern Minnesota's cold, just for anyone who's wondering. Like, my son was in a tank top this weekend, and my wife and I were bundled up in a blanket on, the, on Lake Superior going, ooh, it's cold. She loved it. It was awesome. But James chapter 4, I'm going to jump back in. And like I said, I got my youth pastor mic in here, so I don't apologize for how loud I'm going to get. You guys did this yourselves. James chapter 4, verse 1, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires out war within you you want what you don't have so you scheme and kill to get it you're jealous of what others have but you can't get it so you fight and wage war to take it away from them so realistically human life has not changed in 2000 years yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask god for it and even when you ask you don't get it because your motives are all wrong you want only what will give you pleasure You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Just another warm-hearted sentiment from James. Just sugarcoating, just all the good, happy feelings that you want to feel when your pastor says something to you. Just super, super good. Like, no, it's James. There's Blunt, and then there's James. Like, he is the master of just coming down, hitting you over the head. It's not super fun. But remember, this was written to a group of Jewish believers in Jerusalem. 
So often when we read text like this, it's, it's, it's immediate human nature for us to go, okay, we need to read this as if he's talking directly to me. And while that sometimes very much applies, the reality is when we read these things, he's talking about what was going on in their culture, in their time. And as their pastor at the time, he was not super pumped with what was going on. This guy over here was looking at Hezekiah, and he was going, man, he's got five donkeys with the three saddlebags on them, the chrome horseshoes. I want that. We're not even going to talk about Jedediah. He's too good for donkeys. He rides camels, stuck-up snob. I hate that guy. He's so annoying. He thinks he's better than me because he's got a camel. I've got a lame donkey with three legs and not even a saddle. They're looking at all these things. Okay, okay, I have no idea if that actually happened, but you can understand the context, okay? We look at cars and houses and things. They're looking at livestock. It's a little different, but the sentiment is the same. This was the church in AD 50. This was the people who were Christian people. And James is looking at them and going, what are you guys doing? What is going on? All I hear about is you bickering and battering back and forth, back and forth. I don't like them. I don't like them. The gossip, the behind the back, all that was going on because they looked at what they had and looked at what other people had and they didn't like what they were feeling. It's so easy to go, man, I want that. I want the big house. I want the boat. I want the side by side. I want the dog that actually listens to me. I want all of this stuff. But all I got is a tiny house. And the stuff that I really want, I don't have. And it's so easy for that to be something that was going on. And it, we find that it's, this is not just people in 2022. This is people 2,000 years ago. They're quarreling. They're fighting. Here, here came Jesus. He flipped the world on its head. He did this awesome stuff. He talked about peace. He talked about strength. He did all this really, really, really cool stuff. And he, says, he said, okay, it's now your turn. You guys are the church. It's time for you to carry on and go and do what you're supposed to do. But yet, we find they're doing the opposite. They're fighting. They're looking at what other people have. They're not just being, like, jealous and just, like, closet jealous and going, hmm, they got a good life. We find they're vindictive. They're dishonest. They're mean. They were vying for everything other than God. They're looking at all the worldly stuff around them and going, I want that. God, I know you said you're my everything, but, like, I need a little bit more. need a little bit different. And James didn't mince words. He's looking at this whole thing. He's observing this as a pastor does. He's going, what is the state of the church right now? What, as, as, as their pastor, what do I need to kind of adjust or, or look at? And he's, he doesn't mince words. Do you notice the language he uses here? He's, he calls them murderers. He calls them adulterers, selfish seekers of pleasure. These were strong, condemning titles, especially in this day and age. If you were a murderer, kind of a big deal now, too, <laughs> it's fair to say. If you're a murderer, there's kind of a, a sentence to be paid. There's all that kind of stuff. But in this day and age, if you were an adulterer, if you were someone who was unfaithful to your spouse and was sleeping around, you were considered an adulterer. And at this day and age, if you were an adulterer, a murderer, any of these things, you were subject to death by stoning. It was well within the grounds of the culture and the time for if you were did any of those things, you were as good as dead because you had the ramifications to deal with those types of things. 
So James comes in. He's talking to a bunch of Jewish believers who spent their whole life trying to do the right thing, follow the right rules. They love Jesus. Yeah, we're, we're, we're Christians now. We're good. You know, we're, we're going to heaven, all that good stuff. And he, James comes in and says, you guys are a bunch of murderers and adulterers. They're strong words. He's calling them out for what's going on. And while we, he calls them murderers, it's not in the literal sense of murdering, but Matthew chapter 5 says this. Jesus, these are Jesus' words. You must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment, obviously. But I say if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Jesus level, like raises the bar. He says, yeah, if you murder someone, obviously you're in trouble. But I'm going to go another level. If you're even angry at someone, it's as good as murder. Because the hatred and the feelings you're feeling against this person are, 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 are murderous. They're intense. So when James comes in and calls them murderers and adulterers, he, it, it's a big deal. It's not just a casual, like, slap in the face. It's like a big, big cut-with-your-words type of sentiment. And it was a serious deal. We're in chapter 4 out of 5, so we're almost done with this book and this series. But up to this point, James has been doing very practical things, how to handle hardship, how to handle temptations, how to find wisdom, how to control what you say, when you say it, why you say it, all these different things. But he comes into chapter 4 toward the end of this letter, and after talking about all the practical, real-life things, he comes in and he starts talking about something more conceptual, the heart. Let's go back to verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? James chapter 4 is really all about sin. And the issue of the sin in the heart that we all have. And one thing I know as humans we don't appreciate is being told that we're bad or wrong. We hate it. We live in a, in a world, in a defensive world, where you have to literally be prepared to stand behind every single thing you say and or believe in. Everything. In our world, it's almost like if, if you stand for something, if you believe in something, you better have a reason why, because it's going to come under scrutiny by somebody at some point, at some point in time. And it's not super fun. If you go po political for a second, are you pro-gun or anti-gun? Don't respond, by the way, because I don't want a quarrel and fight to happen in this place, because not everyone sees the same. I have my opinions. Other people have their opinions. And sometimes when they disagree, a passionate discussion ensues. And it's very civil and polite and kind. And everybody walks away feeling very much at peace. We're different than the church of AD 50, right? Quarrels and fights among you. Are you pro-gun, anti-gun, pro-life, pro-choice, pro-Biden, anti-Biden, pro-Trump, anti-Trump? Are you pro-God? No God. Christianity, other religions, Lutheran, Catholic, AG, Pentecostal, whatever you want to say, everybody's got an opinion. And if somebody disagrees with you, they're going to let you know about why you're wrong and they're not. And we do the same thing. It's who we are. People get into spirited debates about whether E.T. and extraterrestrial life is a real thing. We were up at the North Shore. You would have thought Bigfoot was like the president. There were stickers everywhere. 
like, like the little mannequins, you know, like where you're like driving down the road and you catch like a, a glance off and then there's like a silhouette of Bigfoot. It was crazy. But people get into debates about whether Bigfoot's real or not. I would love to pull this one because this would just be interesting, but I'm not going to. People get into fights about which fried chicken is better when there clearly is no debate. Raising Cane's is superior to Chick-fil-A. I don't understand how it's a debate. It's so much better. And they're open all days of the week. I just made some people mad. See, it works. You don't have to look far to find these fights, though. You can go onto Facebook, and I guarantee within four posts, you find a, uh, someone who posts something, and guarantee there's a, a discussion in the comments. Guarantee. It's a legitimate thing, and it's not inherently wrong. It's just people like to discuss. You can go to your neighborhood restaurant. You can go to the t-ball field, and there's people arguing about something. It's everywhere because everyone has an opinion. Everyone has a perspective. Everyone has a thought to share, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem ensues when these opinions clash together. The actions are not so much a problem. It's more so the bigger problem is the motive that caused those actions. The motive is I want to know that I'm right, and I want you to believe that I'm right. That motive is the part that James is addressing. He's not, do you notice he's not talking about the quarrels and the fights themselves? He's not saying don't fight, don't quarrel. He's talking about, like, it comes from the evil desires within your heart. He's not coming at their actions and saying you're wrong because of what you did. You're wrong because of what caused you to do those things. He's addressing the heart. He's addressing the sin within them. James chapter 4 is about sin, but more specifically, sin in the heart. Because the heart is the proverbial, metaphorical epicenter of who we are. Follow your heart, something we hear all the time. Why? Because in the heart is who we really are, right? That heart that is the epicenter of everything that we have. And so when that heart, and when James is saying that heart is, has evil desires within it, it's like a legitimate statement. It's not fun to hear. Because with that same heart, you can go to, you can be so in love with God, so in love with what's going on. I love God. My heart's great. I'm going to church. I'm doing all these right things. But that same heart it's the same heart that will struggle with the sins and the desires that no one else knows about you. That same heart can hold such a passionate love and desire to know God, to serve God, to live your life for God. But that same heart also has things in it that make you want to do things that aren't what God wants for you. You and me. Every single one of us. James puts it as evil desires in your heart, but Paul puts it this way. There is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. How's that for language? A war with my mind. There's this feeling of this conflict, this internal struggle that is just an absolute grind, a war. He talked about being a slave to sin. This, this thing that this, this desire and temptation is so, so strong that he feels like he's enslaved to it. He can't help but give himself away to it. 
You ever been there? You ever felt like there's something that you just so desperately want to kick, a habit, something in your life that you know you want to get rid of, but no matter how hard you push, no matter how much you grit your teeth and say, I'm not going to do this, it always comes back and pulls at you ever harder. That sin is within each of us. And it's not fun to hear. It's not enjoyable to accept, but we as human beings are broken. We have issues within us. And a lot of people debate on whether the human heart, human soul, whatever you want to call it, by default is inherently good with things mixed in that are bad or if it's inherently bad with mixed in good. I'm not entirely sure which it is, but here's what I do know. is that God created man. In the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, God creates man. And he says it is good. Then he brought Eve and said it was good for them to be together. Yet in Genesis chapter 3, we see God has everything for them. They have the whole Garden of Eden, all they could have. You can have anything you want, direct access to God. God's literally walking around in the garden with them, hand in hand. They have everything together. It's awesome. It's fantastic. He says, just guys, just one thing I would ask of you, um, just don't eat that one tree over there. You can have all that you want. Anything you want, this is all yours. Just don't have that tree over there. Literally do anything else you want. I don't care, but just don't do that. For those who know the story, what do they go after? That one tree, right? That temptation in the human soul with the, the prompting of the serpent and the enemy and Satan, it just goes to show that from the very beginning, there was something birthed within each and every one of us of wanting something different. They had everything. We believe in God by faith. We believe in God by seeing that, trusting that we, what we see is, is really reality. They had God himself right there with them. Yet they still couldn't resist the temptation within them to not eat that one thing. And as your pastor, I don't mind admitting to you when we talk, when James read this, or, 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 you know, just wrote this letter. It made me a little uneasy. I was preparing for this message last week. I, I went to the coffee shop and just kind of tucked myself away, and I'm like, I love Bethany, but she got the easier part of this chapter. She left this for me on purpose, didn't you? I'm just kidding. It's not fun to talk about sin. It's not fun to talk about, hey, we're sinful, we're corrupt beings, because let me tell you one thing, that's all I heard growing up. I went to a church where it more so felt like, you better repent because you're going to hell, and you're awful, and you're terrible, but thank God we have Jesus, because without that, we're all done for. And let me tell you what, it didn't make me want to go back to church a whole lot. Because nobody likes being told that you're corrupt, or that you're sinful, or that you're broken. At least I don't. And so I grew up going to church in a way where I just felt like I deserve to walk around every second of every day like I'm an awful, dirty person. But it's all good because Jesus is there. And while I believe that, I'm going to talk about that in a second. The reality is that Jesus is not a reluctant charity. He's a divine act that was on purpose. We don't have to walk around as in like we are the worst, awful, scumbag human beings because that's not how he sees us. If he did, he wouldn't talk to us the way that he does. 
One of the biggest digs, one of the biggest faults in the church today is that we are judgmental people. I talked to a bunch of people. I have, we have a bunch of friends, family, all this good stuff who maybe they aren't comfortable with church or they're not used to church or they're anti-church. And so we get to have some really cool discussions a lot of times. And someone actually asked my wife this last week. She did a little anonymous survey thing type of deal. And she goes, ask me anything. And something that was asked of her is like, basically they, they wanted to say that Christians are some of the most judgmental people on the planet. And I ask myself, why is that? Why is that? Because I think the reality is that we judge ourselves a lot. We look at our life and we go, man, I am trying to do all this right stuff and I'm trying to do all everything else and you're not doing anything, so therefore I'm going to like look on you a little differently. Sin exists in the world and sin exists in the hearts of everyone. It's a human condition. We can't glance over it. We can't hide from it. We can't run from it, but we also can't obsess over it. James in James chapter 4 is not talking, trying to come down on them. It's not a, a message of condemnation and just bury them in the ground. This is a, a, a sentiment by James trying to have a healthy understanding of what sin is and why sin is what it is. Because here's what happens. If we let sin dictate our identity, we are going to walk away and not live out the life that God has for us. If God saw us as the awful human beings that we think we are, then why would he call us his children? God calls us his, his son and his daughters. And let me tell you what, if my son or my daughter, the ones that are down the hallway having the time of their life in kids' church, if they walked around with this idea that their dad, me, thought they were not good for anything, dirty, awful, how would that make me feel as a dad? Make me feel like I'm doing something wrong. If they think that they have to walk around and feel like they're never good enough, never doing the right stuff, awful, terrible, I would like feel as a failure as a dad. Because let me tell you what, they make my life a little crazy sometimes. They're loud and noisy, and they make mistakes. Like when Ellis takes a crayon and draws all over the truck window. It's awesome. First month I had the truck. But when we adjust and correct those things, I'm not doing it saying, Ellis, you're so wrong, you're so terrible, and saying, bud, you can't do that. James chapter 4 is trying to get us to understand what sin is. Because if we want to have a thriving relationship with God, we have to know what our sin is and what our sin isn't. Our sin is something that does separate us from God. Our sin is something that makes us unworthy of heaven. But our sin is not something that keeps us away from him. Our sin is not something that makes us feel like we have to walk around with our head down feeling terrible at ourselves. Our sin is not something that should dictate how we feel about ourselves. Because the way Jesus approached it makes it not so. James chapter 4, continuing on in verses 4, 5, and 6. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and God. In the world. By definition, 
sin is anything that separates us from God. Romans chapter 3 says we all have sinned. We all have things in our life, mistakes we've done, things we've done that are not what God wants, the things that are unholy. By definition, those separate us from God. And if we want to be in God's presence, if we want to go to heaven, we need to be holy. Holy, by definition, is to be unblemished, unmarked, flawless, and perfect. So you can see the rub here. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, we can never, ever be flawless. I've been trying for five years in my marriage. It doesn't work. Six. I rest my case. Let me just, you can't see Meg, so this is Meg. I rest my case in being not flawless. Being flawless, being perfect, being holy in man's own strength is impossible. It's a feat that no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, it is not possible. We can try and try and try, but you will never, ever be able to be good enough to be in God's graces. And that is a tough, tough thing for someone like myself who wants to be enough, who always strives to be enough for things. This is a tough thing for me to go because I have to understand that no matter what I do, no matter what I don't do, it won't be enough. And that is a tough, tough realization. And unfortunately, in a lot of the church world, that's where it stops. You're not going to be enough. You're not going to be enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we walk away feeling discouraged and depraved. But Jesus, I want, you, I want you to understand what James says. Did you catch that word and in there? And he gives grace generously. In other translations, they put but. And but is always a, a difference, and a, a change in direction. You go this way, but then you go this way. So in the other translations, it says, but he gives grace generously. So what we're seeing here is James spent the first five, six chapters talking about how sinful these people were being as they fight and as they quarrel and as these things in their heart are not right, but he gives grace generously. Humble yourselves. Draw near to God. It sure doesn't sound like God's trying to keep us away from him. It sure doesn't sound like God is seeing us through this lens of our sin, this lens of our addiction, this lens of this alcoholism, this lens of this stuff that's going on. He's not seeing us like, <laughs> Good grief. Here you go. Here's a, a, a life raft. Here is a way out. He's going, no, he gives grace generously. He gives grace a lot. He gives grace because he wants us to be near to him. There's a change of direction. Your sin is keeping you away from God. Your sin is pulling you away from God, but God gives grace generously. So come close, draw near, and he will come close to me. He wants us close. He wants us near him. And so let me show you what happens because the enemy, Satan, is a smart son of a gun. And he knows that at the end of this, he loses. He knows that there is nothing in this world, nothing in the heavenly realm that can keep us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8 says this, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love. Check this out. Neither death nor life 
neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. It doesn't sound like someone who's on a losing team. God wins. It doesn't matter what life throws at you. It doesn't matter what comes your way. He wins. And when we are on Jesus' team, when we say, Jesus, I am a flawed human being, but I believe in you. I trust in you. Will you forgive me? We're on his team. And the enemy knows he can't touch you. He can't change that. No matter how much he fights and claws, he loses. So what he can do is try and convince you that of the otherwise. He is the father of lies. He literally has no truth within him. So when he whispers in your ear, you're not good enough, you're, you, God's disappointing you, God's not proud of you, he is speaking the lies only he can speak. I want us to actually hold on to this because what James is trying to say is the enemy knows he loses. So he wants to keep you as far away from God as possible. If he can't physically separate you from God, he wants you to disqualify yourself from him. Because here's what happens. You have to forgive me for this analogy, but it's the only thing I can think of when it comes to us as our human nature. My dog, when he knows he's doing something bad, runs away from me. We have these rocks in our backyard. It drives me wild. This dog can sit here on my side. I can throw a mark 60 yards away. He can sit there, give me some his name, and he can run after it and bring it back and come back to my side. It's awesome. But then when he goes in the backyard and he starts playing with rocks, you would think I'm speaking Chinese to him. Drop the rock. Drop the rock. Leave it alone. No, come here. And he just like looks at me and runs the other direction. I love dogs. But they are so annoying sometimes. A lot of times when we have our sin and we do things that we know God doesn't want, we tend to run away from him. We tend to hide from him. We tend to feel like, you know what, I, how could God even love me or be proud of me? I just told him last week I was not going to do this ever again. Here I am doing it right again. I just told God I'm going to try and clean up my life, and all of a sudden, here I am right again in a deeper mess than I was last month, and we run away because the enemy sees our sin and uses it to twist something that's not true. The enemy says, you're too far gone. You're not good enough. Never will be. Quit trying. God's not going to come back for you. If he can't have that actual separation, he's going to make sure we try and do it ourselves. So here comes James saying, be humble. Submit yourself to God. What he's saying is acknowledge your brokenness and know that it's covered. Acknowledge and don't be too proud and pretend that you don't have sin. Don't be too proud and pretend it's not a big deal. Don't pretend that God doesn't still love you. Because watch this, our unwillingness to draw near to God because of our sin is just pride in reverse. When you say, I, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care, God, I, there's no way that God can forgive me, there's no way that he could get rid of this, you're in essence telling him he didn't do enough. We talk about pride and we think about saying, I'm, I'm, I'm t- I'm, I don't need God. We think about pride in the way of pounding our chest, doing that thing. But when we tell God that you couldn't possibly love me, we're basically telling him we know better than you. We're telling him that that cross didn't mean anything, at least not in this situation. The reason we have a cross is because Jesus knew full well we wouldn't have what it takes to be perfect. 
but he did it for us. He gives grace generously as a gift because he gives us that perfection because he paid for it. He did what only he could do. Humility before God is the key to experiencing all that he is. Being humble. Humble yourselves before God. Again, another translation says, submit yourself to God. God, I'm, I'm, I'm fallible. God, I make mistakes. God, I've been trying to beat this thing for a long time, and I can't do it, and I'm sorry. I've turned away from you. I've ran from you. I've done everything you told me to not do. I've not done anything you told me to do. I have been zigging when you've been zagging. I've been all the wrong stuff, God. I am sorry. That is humility. It's understanding that we have enough gumption to say, I'm not perfect. And when we draw near to him, he draws near to us. We're missing out on the very things our heart desire when we let sin dictate how we live. We want peace. We want joy. We want all these good things in our life. But when we let sin dictate how we live and how we feel about ourselves, we're robbing ourselves of those very things. Because when we're stuck in our sin, we feel like we have no peace. We feel like we're fighting an uphill battle. We feel like we're doing all these things that aren't going to be good enough. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil. Do what you can in your power to resist the temptations. Resist the devil. What does that look like? Do things practically to not put yourself in a position to fail. Resist the devil. If you struggle with lust or looking at other people, it might be a matter of you have an accountability partner. Somebody to talk to and say, hey, I messed up, I screwed up. If you struggle with an addiction, a chemical thing, you know what? Humble yourself. Be willing to go to an AA meeting. Be willing to have a conversation with your spouse. Be willing to have somebody in your life who is an accountability partner that you can call up when you're being tempted. If you struggle with money, you struggle with different things that are keeping you from God. Maybe it's a matter of having that conversation with somebody, taking a class. We have a Financial Peace University class coming up here in fall. Cut up the credit cards you don't need. Resisting the devil is not a matter of just you not doing things. It's putting yourself in a position for God to work through you. Because if you try to fight the devil one-on-one, you're going to lose. Because while he loses to him, he's still a, he's still a spiritual being. And so if we try to fight him on our own strength, it's not going to work. Because we don't have the power. Which is why I want you to see something. So much when we read the Bible, it's all about how things are written. And I can actually dissect it. But I want us to go back to James chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. I want you to see this because this is so, so important. This is where we as human beings get it wrong. Check this out. Verse 7, humble yourselves before God and then resist the devil and he will flee from you. You can't get that in reverse because it's not going to work. If you try to resist the devil and try and do it on your own strength and not ask God for help, you're going to lose. It's like going to war without guns. We can't plan to resist the devil but not go to the source that it can defeat him. Jesus wants us. There's so much intimacy in this verse. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. He wants nothing more than for you to be close to him. He wants nothing more than for you to draw close to what he wants for you, which is why the enemy tries to make you feel like you can't. You're not good enough because that's what God wants is for you to be close. 
The title of my message today, as I leave you with this, is to draw near. Come close, and God will come close to you. Here's what's crazy about this. We believe God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere all the time. So when it says, come close to God, and God will come close to you, here's what's crazy. God physically can't get closer to you in terms of general proximity and geography. He is as close as he can be. But when we draw near to him, we are realigning our perspective. I had this word picture on the way today. It almost feels like, this is going to sound really weird. So forgive me, okay? Just got to let you know, this sounds really, really weird. So many times when I was a kid, my dad would stand with his feet like this. You probably see this picture. And like little kids love to like wrap their arms around their, their feet and try to walk around. Anybody with me on that one? Okay. And then inevitably the dad kind of like tries to walk and then the kid's there and it's, it's like fun for a minute. And then all of a sudden the dad's like annoyed, just done with it. A lot of times when we say come close to God, it's a matter of instead of us just holding on, it's almost as if that dad got down face to face with us, picked us up and held us and kept going. God is so close. God is with you in your valley. He's with you in your uncertainty. He's with you in your questions. He's with you all of the time in your highest of highs and your lowest of lows. But when you draw near to him, when you come close to him, you are not changing God's proximity to you. You're changing your proximity to him. You're basically turning, oh, instead of saying, God, follow me. God, are you coming with me? When you draw close to God, it's you turning towards him and going, looking at him face to face. Draw near to God. He will come close to you. That's what he wants. He wants you close. He wants you to be close to him in every single season, every single moment. When you're uncertain, when you're super certain, when you need him for a miracle, like Bethany talked about last week, he wants you close. But he also wants you close when you're on the backside of the miracle and things are going great again. He wants you close. At the very core of who God is, is he's a father. And if you've had a poor father figure in your life, I want to apologize for, to you. On behalf of everything, I want to apologize. Because sometimes we talk about God the Father, you go, my father was a piece of work. Not this one. He wants to care for you and love you in a way like nobody could possibly could. So James chapter 4, what he's trying to get, what I want us to see in this chapter is a healthy perspective on sin. We're sinful. We're going to walk out this door and let me tell you what might happen today, might happen a month from now, might happen a year from now, might happen an hour from now. We will screw up. We will make mistakes. My challenge to you is to understand that that's sin and that's why he came. That's what he did. Sin makes us aware of how much we need Jesus. But sin should not disqualify us from him. Our sin makes us aware, God, I've screwed up again. Would you forgive me? Yep, you're covered. Thank you. God, I, I, I told you I wouldn't do this again, but here I am. Would you forgive me? Would you, would, you, would you help me? He's there. My challenge to all of us this morning is to draw near. Whether it's something with sin whether it's something that you need from him, I want us to draw near. Because especially as we go forth, as we truly desire 
to see our community reach for Jesus, to come alive in Jesus. We need that proximity. We need to be near to him. Will you pray with me this morning? God, I thank you for what the cross means. Jesus, the cross means that it doesn't matter what we did yesterday. It doesn't matter what we did last night. It doesn't matter what we did years ago. That sin that just hangs with us, that sin that just makes us feel like we can't do anything right. God, you've covered it, and you're there for us, and you paid for it. So, Jesus, today with humility, we just ask, God, would you forgive us? As a collective body, I'm not even going to have you raise your hand because I think all of us in here have been in this place saying, God, I have made mistakes. I've done things that I'm ashamed of. I've done things that I swore I wouldn't do again. I've done things that I'm embarrassed to even say out loud. Jesus, would you forgive us? Would you help us? Would you cleanse us of it? You don't hold on to our sin with reluctance. But your word says you separate it as far as the east is from the west. You make us white as snow. God, you give us that flawless and that Holy Spirit. So we ask God for your forgiveness today. But God, this week as we talk about drawing near, as we come to church week in and week out, as we listen to your worship music, as we pray, as we dig into what your Bible says, may we draw near. And as we draw near, may we feel closer to you. You're already here. You're already moving. You're already close. But may we feel that closeness and feel that proximity. God, we're thankful for you. Give us a clean heart, clean slate. Help us become more like you every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can we give it up for God? This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.